Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Every year after Thanksgiving and just before Christmas, the world of college football starts to debate heavily about one of the most iconic trophies in all of sport, the Heisman Trophy. Awarded annually to the best college football player in the land, who was the man the trophy is named after? Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we'll talk about that man, John W. Heisman, and discover why it was named after him his career, and what he did to deserve such an honor with his great nephew and the man tasked with preserving his legacy, John M. Heisman. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I sure hope you've been enjoying the podcast, and thanks for tuning in today. And I hope you've also had a wonderful holiday season. Today, we're going to talk with John Michael Heisman. Many years ago, his father tasked him with an incredible assignment. Document the history and preserve the legacy of his great uncle one of the greatest coaches in the history of college football, John William Heisman. Now, this was not an easy undertaking. In fact, it took years, tons of research, interviews, and a lot of patience. Finally, after all of the information was put together, John wrote a book, Heisman, The Man Behind the Trophy. And in just a moment, John will join us to talk about his legendary uncle, what made him so special, the innovations he brought to the game, many of which are still used and in practice today, and he'll also share some terrific stories. First, though, I want to thank all of you who continue to listen to and support Sports Forgotten Heroes. If you'd like to show your support, please visit the Sports Forgotten Heroes Patreon page at patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash sportsfh. For as little as $1 a month, your support can go a long way. Follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Check out our page on Facebook or visit our website, SportsFH.com, to learn more about the guests who appear on the podcast, the great stars we talk about, and to see who else is scheduled to be featured. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Over 180,000 titles to choose from, including Heisman, the man behind the trophy. And these are all for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible is a great way to enjoy your favorite books, especially when you're on the run. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. You get a free Audible book and a 30-day free trial. And it's also another great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes. 
So, who was the man behind the trophy, and why did the Downtown Athletic Club of New York City name its College Football Player of the Year trophy after John W. Heisman? Well, without further ado, joining us now on Sports Forgotten Heroes is the great nephew of the man for whom the trophy was named, John M. Heisman. John, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you very much, Warren. I'm, I'm happy to be there. I appreciate you having me on. Let's start here. Tell me about the book that you co-wrote with Mark Schleback, Heisman, the man behind the trophy. Why did you decide to write it? It's It was a long, developing story. Um, there are several factors to it. One was I, it was a family obligation that sort of got put in my hands by my father Oh, back in the late, early 70s, about the time I was graduating from college. Uh, my dad had um, all of my, my of our of Coach Heisman's memorabilia, and he put it in my hands and said, please do something with this. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I, uh, over the, it took me years to sort through it. He had a, uh, Heisman was a prolific writer and collector of information, had a very highly organized mind. But this all came to us in a couple, three old uh, oaken trunks, traveling trunks that uh, I had to sort through because it was all packed. It was packed with a great deal of care, but it was there was no rhyme or reason to it. And uh, over the years, I assembled it in some sort of chronological order, and then I began working with it. It was about a 40-year project. Um, I actually did try to enlist the help of other writers at, the t- at several times, asking if they'd like to ghostwrite it. People would look at it and say, ah, I don't think I want to tackle this. And so <laughs> somewhere along somewhere along the line, I just upped my game and said, I'm going to write it. And I actually wrote probably a 360 or 70-page document Wow. That I revised. I probably revised. I probably had six or seven versions of it. And um, through a friend of a friend, it got before Simon and Schuster, and we had three different uh, publishing houses under their banner uh, bid on it. And um, Howard Books came out as the victor, and um, John Merks, the publisher said, I'll do this, but I would like a noted sports writer to punch it up, and uh, which kind of injured my pride a little bit. But <laughs> it, um, Mark Schleyball was just the perfect choice to work with, and he and I got along great. He's a fine young man and uh, accomplished professional, and uh, I enjoyed working with him. He and I become friends in the process, and I, we still stay in touch. That's awesome. What surprised you most when you were doing the research? What surprised you most about John Heisman? Um, Difficult question. Uh, My father had told me a whole lot about him uh, growing up. And what amazed me most was just how accurate my father's recollections were. Hmm. Uh, When I got into the written material, I found verification for everything my father ever told me because my dad can spin a yarn. (laughs) And I, and I, I, uh, I thought, okay, he's probably embellishing here or there. But when I got into the material, 
this was material my dad hadn't seen either and um or read when i got into it i found i just found all this historic written documented stuff that backed up everything my dad ever told me i guess that was the most uh fascinating part for me but finding out oh the nuances the people he knew the 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 um, the shape of history that happened around him and that he was involved in was fascinating. Um, I think what finally, when I started to realize how his career was formed, it, football may have, uh, there, there could have been a point in his life had it taken another turn where football would have lost the contributions of Heisman, but Heisman would have been known as a stage name because he owned a, a, a theater group. He was an accomplished actor. Um, he made a very good living on stage, much more so than a football coach. And, um, but I think he just stuck with his passion, which was athletics and football in, in, in specific. And uh, hence his, his accomplishments in the sport and how he shaped the game uh, went down in history. So there was a point where I thought, you know, he could have gone either way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was, he did end up being pretty accomplished on the stage and he actually was very accomplished writer. I mean, um, every year when talk about the Heisman trophy heats up and then they award the trophy, what do you think about? Uh, it's sort of a bittersweet time for me because it's a time my dad and I used to connect a lot, especially when I lived in one city and he'd be in another. Um, he would call me up and say, well, what do you think about this guy? And we'd talk about the pros and cons of the selection. We'd talk about, uh, you know, maybe if we were surprised or not or whatever. My dad was always coming down on, well, he seems to be a, a young man of good character because that was what was so important to Coach Heisman. And uh, when guys started, come, when when they started awarding the things solely based on football performance, my father was very agitated, and I sort of caught that too from him because I knew what I I knew from my readings and all the research I'd done from the stories my dad told me that character was foremost in Heisman's mind. Uh, I had it drilled. I had it drilled into me that being a good football player isn't half as important as being a fine gentleman, and uh, that was always what was the mantra of our family. And, and some uh, of that, so some I, of that came out in the book that way too. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was very true. It was my dad. <clears throat> my dad lived it. Um, he. He did not want to see someone get the trophy that was just in, you know, just crass and and uh, would misrepresent the name, and that's that was always something. So when whenever this time of year comes up, there's a bit of angst that goes through me. There's a little bit of uh, I've been there. I know what I kind of know what goes on. I see what the, I, I see how hard the trust works to put on a good. Uh, presentation and to honor the young players. Um, but it's always the thing where it's been left in the hands of all these voters throughout the country. And I think they get embellished and, and, and carried away with all the athleticism they see. And they, they, we've sort of gone soft on the character issue. Hmm, interesting. 
So your book covers a lot. And anybody listening to Sports Forgotten Heroes, I'm going to tell you, get this book, Heisman, The Man Behind the Trophy. In fact, you can get it as an audible book as well. It's just Mm -hmm. a terrific, terrific read, and it covers so much. So let's talk now about the beginning. John Heisman's father, Michael Heisman. Is it fair to say that Michael Heisman might be responsible for a term we all use today, a barrel of oil, and the measurement of 42 gallons per barrel? Can you tell me about that? That is lesser, it's a lesser known fact, and it's, um, I honestly have not been able to find the the details of that other than when he came, when he migrated from um, Cleveland to Titusville because of the oil industry, and when he was trying to save money on shipment, I get the feeling that his standard barrel <laughs> was already at that at that gallon mark uh-huh. because of the beer industry okay. and i think it happens i think it happened because when they when he came over on the boat settled in cleveland with the other german immigrants and their main uh, one of their main staples was having a, a keg of beer handy and he made barrels for the beer industry and i have the feeling that he said well this is going to be the standard for the oil industry too <laughs> It's amazing. It still holds true today. Oil, or the manufacturing of the barrels to hold oil, is where the Heisman family actually built their fortune, is it not? I mean, the Heismans also kept good company. Andrew Carnegie, John Rockefeller. What an exciting time. And Pennsylvania is where it all started. In fact, it's where the first barrel of oil was ever pumped. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of the oil industry in Titusville, Pennsylvania, and Michael Heisman, John Heisman's father, his involvement in it? Yeah. Let me let me just do a little point of clarification. Michael Cornelius Heisman was my grandfather, Coach Heisman's younger brother, uh, who people in Titusville refer to as Michael as John Michael Heisman. Uh, my great grandfather, and that's who I'm named for. Okay. Um, so I I always have to be careful because when you say Michael, I'm thinking grandfather, and everybody else is thinking my great grandfather, who <laughs> okay. was in the oil industry. Okay. Um, but it, and that's that's understandable because when I go to Titusville, they all call him Michael. Um, anyway, um, yeah, the it is a pretty phenomenal time. Titusville was. Uh, Titusville, when Drake and company built, built the, drilled their wells to try to, uh, to start pumping from the ground, un- unheard of, very revolutionary. Um, you know, they're just sopping this stuff up off of Oil Creek in, with, with rags to, to crudely, in an unprocessed way, one, to get it off the water, two, to, to uh, just use it to lubricate different things when they could. But they didn't see any practical application for it. And Drake started to understand that if you get this stuff up in mass and, and get it processed, you'd have something you'd have something to deal with. And that's when they started to do this. Um, the oil industry uh, sprang up in such a way around Titusville that you know 
millions of dollars flowed and flowed readily and, and quickly. They had, uh, I've, when I've gone to Titusville and talked to people and seen the pictures, anybody that had a few, few bucks to rub together, put up a derrick, tried to, tried to drill to see if they had any luck. Mm-hmm. Um, John Michael Heisman himself had a couple of, of wells, um, but he found that it was too much of a distraction that if he concentrated on making barrels, he did much better. Um, when I look at the field where his cooperage stood and where the stockyards were off of the rail, rail spurs, it was, if you can imagine, about a couple of three football fields lined up side by side, you can get an idea of how much stock was brought in in split wood just to make the barrels on a continual basis and employ anywhere from 30 to 40 men at any given shift that ran all the time. They were just pumping out barrels like crazy. Hmm. Um, The most interesting thing I found in my research uh, that just floored me and the the summer of 1971, uh, Ed Spence was the uh, editor of the Titusville Herald, and he became friends with my father. And we would go there for different events, and that's how we became tied, retied to the Titusville, uh, to our Titusville roots, so to speak. And I called up Ed and I said, I'd like to get into the to the archives of the Herald just to read about the time. Could I please do that? And he said, sure. And he put me up at the YMCA downtown. And I had I had access to the to the microfish of the Titusville Herald. And I went in there and I started reading about just the, the incredible wealth that was spun from the oil industry and the foresight of the Titusville uh, fathers and the industrial giants to invest in this community, both in the arts and in education. In the arts, they actually funded three full-stage theaters that brought in talent from all over the world, and they their cultural atmosphere in that time in the late 1800s was second to none. Um, it was amazing. That's this is a huge influence in Heisman's life, which is where it's thespian. The thespian bug bit him. The second thing was the educational system was second to none also. The the formal education that came to Titusville was of a classical nature. It was tremendous. They brought, they, they brought in the best teachers they could get. And they funded the public schools with a grant, with, a, with an endowment. When I was there in 1971, here 100-plus years after the Drake Well, the public schools had never been on a ballot for a millage or a penny from public from the public till. It was still running on that endowment. Wow! I sat there, I I and I went through the high school and they lacked for nothing. They had everything they could possibly want. Now the last few years when I've been there, uh, the last time I was there, I think it was uh, 2013. And I asked about it, and they said, yeah, we've had to put a few mills here and there, but it's nothing like what we experience throughout the country when we're trying to raise money to fund our public education. It's just, it would be like, oh, yeah, we need this to cover the heating expense this year, something like that. They still have an endowment that supports the floor of that public education in that region. It's amazing. It's I mean, incredible. that thing ran for and well over 
well over a century, a century and a half. Wow, that's that really is incredible. All right, we got to talk football here. John W. Heisman first played the game when it really wasn't similar to what we watch today. Can you tell me a little bit about the game of football when he first played? Well, if we go back to Titusville, it looked a lot more like a soccer with a built-in rugby scrum. Hmm. Um, nobody ran with the ball. It was all kicked. And they piled into each other and just, you know, bashed, bashed their shins together until the ball squirted out. And he, he used to write, he says, since we were we won all our games, so we must have been a fair, fair bunch of kickers. When he... <laughs> went to Brown. Um, he was looking around. He, was, he said, I chose my college poorly when it came to football because they did not have a, a they, they had uh, just done away with the, the sport as a club, as a school sport, as a varsity sport, simply because they had embarrassed themselves so badly. So he joined the, he joined the town club in Providence and uh, played for them. And the thing that when he first got there, there was a pickup game going, and he got in the game and ruined his Titusville suit that he had special tailored to go to college in. And, and you covered that. In, you covered that in depth in the book. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, that's his own writing. It's really it's it's well done. But he ran with the ball for the first time there, and he says it was the most thrilling thing he could think of. He made about 20 yards um, picking up a fumble, and somebody brought him down with a bone-jarring crash, and he says it was the happiest thing he'd, he'd had that had ever <laughs> happened to him up to that point in his life. But the game, yeah, the game was um, more akin to rugby. Um, it was the red-haired orphan child of rugby, soccer, and a lot of pickup thrown in. It's kind of like if you talk to an Australian, they say we make up our rules as we go along so we can break them as we go along. It's um, uh, it's a game that was just mishmashed and nobody completely agreed with the rules as stated. And the game was a comedy of errors in many ways. This, the school that had the best talkers and orators and, and, and could hold the best arguments um, often won the game of the rules while they're on the field, while it's being played, while their teammates are moving the hanky that marks where the ball was. It's, it's kind of like that. Hmm. Hmm. Um, formalizing the game um, came through Walter Camp, through um, Heisman's writings, through just a n- number of number of men who contributed to the rules committee and slowly but surely pressed out the rules over over decades of work and time and effort. And uh, Heisman was right at the crux of that. And since he was a prolific writer and had a degree in law, he could set forth a case very, very well and clearly that everybody understood. And much of his much of his suggestions would, would be written into the rule books almost verbatim is how he how he proposed it. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a tough 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 game, mass plays, people getting hurt, um, and 
uh, it was you know Teddy Roosevelt stepped in and said I'm going to right. I'm going to prohibit football if you guys don't open this up, clean it up, make it safer because right. the cream of the the cream of the educational crop in America was, were dying on the fields. Interesting. Hey, so you had mentioned Providence and Brown, Brown University. Yep. Why did he choose to go to a school? that didn't have a football program that had just canceled their football program and a school that didn't have a law school and his father wanted him to study law. Why did he choose Brown? I think he chose Brown to answer the second question first. I think he chose Brown to get his, the, his, how would you say core education? It was a, had a wonderful classicist education going on there. I think that's why he went. As for the football, I don't think he knew that they had abolished or, or stopped their ah. their club. Because uh, he said when I, he arrived, that's when he found out that they didn't have football, and that's why he joined the town team. I think to pursue law, then that's when he made his, after two years, he made his transfer to Penn and, and uh, went into the law school there. Yeah, so tell me about his career at Penn and how hard it was for him to make the team, especially considering how small he was. Yeah, it might have been <clears throat> might have been small, but it was mighty with a lot of players. Um, <laughs> he had to, for, for the first time to to compete for a position, and Heisman didn't care where he played; he just wanted to play, and he played every position of the line when he was at Penn starting out at center um, and he kept getting stronger and, and putting on, Oh, he probably increased his weight to a strapping 165. I think he started out <laughs> about 150, 155 and he got up to 165 and it was all lean muscle. He was, he was a very fit individual and he played, uh, he played center and he had his guards that were on both sides on where, 200 plus pound fellas and so he said he felt very privileged to play next to him considering he was giving up 40 pounds to each of them and uh and he when they played other teams he was often the smallest guy there but he his his fundamentals were so good that he could hold his own uh until they all fell on top of him then he said it was like being in an earthquake <laughs> and uh he but he he learned to play every position on the line, and he always felt like the linemen were the most valuable valuable players on the team because they they had to understand how to block, when to block, when to pull, when to run, when to do this, when to do that. And he said, "There was he said, you know, it was the old saying of to be a lineman you had to be big and dumb, and to be a running back you just had to be dumb." So. Well, there's he, something he there's something to that about uh, how 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 important line play still is today. Yeah, yeah, it is. And if you, from what I understand, um, the average IQ of a lineman is quite a bit higher than the average IQ of running backs and receivers. So interesting. Yeah, I've, but he uh, he at at ten he. Uh, Mixed with some of the finest, he he uh, uh, teammates with the future mayor of uh, of Philadelphia. Um, he was teammates with uh, 
gentleman who would be knighted for his work in World War One of, of keeping the supply lines open. He was um, he just knew a whole lot of he he just knew a whole lot of people who were his contemporaries who would become uh, business and international and and governmental movers and shakers. Sure, guys like and Dudley he, uh, Dean, who was the quarterback at Harvard, who went on to become a hero you know, with the Battle of San Juan Hill in Cuba during the Spanish-American yep. War. There was Henry yep. Thornton, who was hired to modernize the Great Britain railway system. Thomas McClung yep. from Yale, who went on to become treasurer of the U.S. under President Taft. I mean, he played with and against some pretty significant people in our history. Yeah. He, um, uh, he, and he, these were folks that, uh, stayed in touch with him, that, uh, wrote, wrote him and would go to, when there was a big game in town in New York or Philly or anywhere else, he could call up and say, Hey, do you got some tickets? Or they'd call him and say, do you have any tickets? And they'd all go to the game together. It was pretty, pretty phenomenal that, uh, he was in the mix of so many influential men and, uh, uh, he ended up, I guess, the senior year. Yeah, he ended up playing, playing end, and learning how to block on the end, and and also uh, tackle from the end position. And he he distinguished himself on the on his on the Penn team at that time. Uh, it was it was quite something. Now his last game at Penn was played at Madison Square Garden, and it's not the same Madison Square Garden that we are all familiar with today. But that game had quite the effect on his career, on his law career and his coaching career. Can you tell me what happened in that game at Madison Square Garden? Well, the uh, whether this happened before the game or after, I've never been I've never been able to uh, verify. But um, <clears throat> he was shagging balls for one, for the punter, and the uh, the uh, custodians of the of the garden were had lowered the big galvanic lights that um, they used way up to light the interior of the thing. It was it was quite the modern modern miracle to light the interior of this vast area, but they did it with galvanic lighting, with uh, arc lighting, and they were testing it. And one of the balls rolled over next to one of these lamps that was now propped against the ground. And um, he walked, he ran over there to get it. And as he bent over, he was facing the lighting. And at that instant, they chose to fire it up. And it would mm. be like looking into an arc welder without any protection. Mm. And it uh, did tremendous damage to his eyes. Now, <clears throat> my father was a my father was an iron worker. And one of my jobs right out of high school was to go and I got, I was a journeyman iron worker myself. And I've been around welders and you just don't look at those things without doing damage. You come away with spots in your, in your eyes. And sometimes you get that vision back and sometimes you don't. Like looking at the uh, sun, you see this big spot. Oh in your yeah. Eye. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you're around an arc welder, you never want to look at that white hot heat there that's generated when, and that's going on. Um, it's called getting flashed. Well, he was very flashed. He was, this thing went off right in his face, and his eyes blurred up immediately, and he 
everything became blurry and he couldn't uh couldn't navigate very well and he thought it would he thought it would just come back and they got back to the campus and a day or two later he still can't see see right and he cannot it's impossible to read anything and here he is his senior year and he's in a law program which requires just an ordinate amount of reading so uh what happened was he uh, gathered his friends together, many of which were on the football team, and he said, look, I can't see worth, a, worth beans. I'm going to need your help. And he formed a study group, and he had them read, read, his les- read the lessons to him, and he would argue back the lessons, and then they would, they would interact a lot. And it actually improved everybody's grades in the, in the class and improved their retention, and they all got into the study group habit. And so then he went to the uh, the law school board, and they said, um, every, by this time everybody knew what had happened, and he petitioned them to take his, his law finals um, orally and to take his exams orally, and they agreed. Now, according to my father, when they agreed, they said, but it'll be harder than what I think everybody else's written exam will be. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll just have to deal with it. But my dad said he came out of a flying, <clears throat> he passed with flying colors and, you know, and he received his degree. Yeah. Dealt with it, uh, so, dealt with it really well. Yes. Yes. Indeed. Overcame a, a tremendous uh, hardship in order to do it. Sure. So after he attended Penn, he went on to coach at a school in Ohio called Oberlin. He only coached there for one year, and they went 7-0. and But that's where yep. Heisman laid the foundation for his coaching career, and this is also where he established signals. And he came up with quite the intricate system, and he, he would refine it over time. But the basics were this. Vowels meant the right halfback was getting the ball. Consonants meant the left halfback was getting the ball. A vowel followed by a number under 100, such as A45, meant the right halfback would get the ball, would go straight ahead on his own side through the tackle. Talk about his system. Where did he come up with this? Who called the plays and signals? How difficult were they to comprehend how did players study for them? I mean, wow. Yeah. He um he had a system he, he had started out with uh signals was, was such an a, a a work of evolution and he, he talks about when he played uh the different signals and how there was all kinds of different things they thought were real clever and if you ended a word with L-Y, you were going right, and if you didn't, you were going left, and <laughs> all kinds of stuff was happening. It was like, but he be, he became, um, when you talked to or you read any of the articles of his uh, early years, um, or you, you talk, or you read any of the journals or any of the publications, uh, collegiate newspaper stuff, they always referred to Heisman as, having a scientific methodology and Hmm. uh, the players had much as if they were in a classroom had to memorize his, his plays. 
And he did not necessarily have very easy uh, cross-referencing play. I mean, I can remember playing and knowing that the holes were numbered. Zero one through zero one through nine, uh-huh. um, even number even numbers left, odd numbers right, mm-hmm. and the backs were the backs were numbered one through four, and the three back was always the full back, and the, if you called a thirty six, he was going through off tackle on the on the left side. Uh, we it, that was just such a standard that you just put the two numbers together, you knew who was carrying the ball and where they were going, and then the blind blocked accordingly. Well, his system was not was not that simple. It was like um, he had numbers that corresponded to backs and holes and where they were going <laughs> and what the contingencies were and and what the what the vowels meant and what the consonants meant. When you called it out, um, you everybody had to know and be on the same page at once. And then he had later on he put in the shift, which was a whole nother. Um, dimension of attack that was just horrible for a defense to figure out how to defend <laughs> and uh it was it was a silent it was a silent signal nobody knew how they did it or how they were able to shift at the right time and finally a, an old georgia tech player told me how he did it he says when the when the uh center bent over to snap it it was all one motion and as soon as he started as soon as he bent over the shift happened and then the ball came back and you had to be in the right place. Well, the signals, um, my dad once told me that when Heisman gave, uh, set up his signal program with everybody. And if they balked at it, he says, where he said, uh, son, where are you? He says, well, I'm standing right here. He says, no, where, where's your, what college do you belong to? Hmm. And he would either say Oberlin, Bucktel, uh, Clemson, API, Georgia Tech, whatever it was. And he says, and how did you get here? And he says, well, I studied real hard. He says, now apply yourself. <laughs> he said, <laughs> basically, he'd get the message across, which was, look, you're in college. How? What percentage of people get into college? You're here because you have brains. If you have brains and you're in college, you can learn my system. And it's that simple. And he never let anyone off the hook. <laughs> so if you didn't learn his plays, if you didn't learn it the way he said it, you didn't play. And everybody was crazy. They wanted to play, so they learned it. I could just see uh, them walking around of... with a playbook, you know, bumping into trees. Oh, yeah. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was... Uh, they would quiz each other until they had it, and uh, his best teams would have it down right away. And they would, because they, if you didn't have it down, he had a way of making you feel about an inch big. Mm-hmm. And you uh, would you would appeal to your to your your common sense and to your intellect and say, you know, how did you ever get into college, young man? <laughs> <laughs> so he expected. A couple of things. One, you be a gentleman. Two, you you study because your studies came first. And then three, you you play your hardest and work work very hard on the football field so that you enjoyed it and you represented your alma mater correctly. And and you was, you refer to that later on in the book too again about how important it was to to be yeah. proper and respectful. Um, so he goes seven and zero at Oberlin, but they can't afford to keep him. So he moves on to Bucknell, which later becomes the University of Akron. 
He met with some success there, but they didn't play a whole lot over a two-year period. They went something like six and two. And then he went back to Oberlin. They needed a coach for the final two games of the year. This is also when one of the biggest and saddest events in his life happened and really shaped the rest of his career. The woman he wanted to marry, and we'll talk about what happened later, later on in the interview, the woman who he wanted to marry got consumption, which is better known as tuberculosis. She wouldn't marry him, and staying in Ohio would be tough on John mentally. So he packed up and left. It was quite a year for him. All that happened, but in a crude way, it worked out well for him, and he wound up at Auburn. Wow. What can you tell us about 1895 and his failed attempt at growing tomatoes? (laughs) Um, Quite the year. Um, Staying in Oberlin was going to be too painful. Uh, He did not want to eventually attend his fiancée's, ex-fiancée's funeral. Um, That was more than he could bear. And she she literally sent him away. She was a very strong-willed woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will talk talk a little bit more about her later on. Yeah. So um, he just decided he needed a change. And you have to remember that this is a time when if you're in college, you're not assured a, a, a job of any kind. You're still not assured a job when you're in college. But at that time, it was like if you had an education, you had something to barter. You were a man of letters. You'd go do something. Heisman still wasn't in a position where he could um, perform the reading duties or just the cursory things you had to do to be an attorney. And he also knew that he was um, he was somewhat, you know, um, sought after as a football coach, but that wasn't widely known. It wasn't like today: football coach gets fired or gets released or uh, finds a better, greener pastures. He um, he has to, uh, you know, figure out what he's going to do for a living. Well, we were still, um, we're just entering into the Industrial Revolution. I mean, the oil industry started that. But he is, um, he is looking at, you know, how can, I, how can I make a buck? So he starts doing what had been popular by a lot of, uh, by a lot of entrepreneurs. He became a gentleman farmer. Um, I know that if you get into the history of the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma, that mm-hmm. was caused by numerous gentlemen farmers growing wheat and depleting the soil and creating the, uh, the great dust storms and and wiping out the topsoil of, of uh, central Oklahoma. Well, mm-hmm. he didn't do that. He went to West Texas. I'm sorry, East Texas. And he, uh, you know, leased a field and he started trying trying to grow tomatoes, uh, thinking, you know, tomatoes is a good uh, cash crop. Now, unfortunately, he was faced with some very severe heat and drought, and he was about to lose his shirt. Well, along comes uh, a gentleman who had been looking for a football coach and, 
he finds he got he was in communication with some folks at Penn, and he says, uh, "If you can find John Heisman, we think he went to Texas. <laughs> uh, you'd have a <laughs> you'd have a very place. good you'd have a very small, good man. Yeah, yeah, small little place at that time. Right, right. And he, lo and behold, he tracks him down and and meets with him and." Uh, the picture I always have of that meeting is he's looking around saying, you know, talking about API, um, Alabama Polytechnical Institute, which became Auburn, and uh, looking around at these dying tomatoes and saying, uh, you know, we sure do need a football coach. Would you consider it? And they, he did not once mention the fact that it's obvious you're losing your shirt here. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that's what won Heisman over. The man refused to put him in a, an embarrassing position, and they became lifelong friends. And he, that's how he got to Auburn. Interesting. And I can, I, I can just picture him taking his hoe and pitching it over his shoulder and walking off the field with him. <laughs> so. so after Heisman's quote-unquote failed attempt at tomato farming, that's when he heads back to coaching college football and he goes at it full bore. But before we get there, I just want to remind everyone that today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. And for listeners of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we have a terrific offer for you. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Over 180,000 titles available from history to fiction to sports and more. Give Audible a try. To download your free audio book today, go to audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh for your free audio book. Hey, if you're like me and you're running through airports, sitting on planes, racing from location to location, and you just can't find the time to sit down and read, and you don't like lugging around a heavy book, Audible is great. Give it a try. It's free. And the book Heisman, The Man Behind the Trophy, is available on Audible. It's a great read or a great listen. So, Heisman turns his back on becoming a farmer in Texas and heads to the Agricultural and Mechanical College of Alabama, which later becomes known as Auburn University. And this is where the legend of John W. Heisman, the man for whom the Heisman Trophy was named, really takes off. Hey, let's advance the story a little here. He played the game and ultimately became a legendary coach. And he played a huge role in establishing the rules of which we are very familiar with today. He came up with blocking schemes for backs when the rules were changed to allow for blocking. He came up with the term hike. He divided the game into quarters. He conceived of the center snap and much more. Tell me about Mm -hmm. that. That one's really interesting to me. How did he conceive of the center snap? That one was um, uh, because the young man that they recruited for quarterback at Bucktel, uh, Henry Clark, was the pitcher of their baseball team, and they figured that he could he could do long lateral passes quite easily from that position because he had strong arms. Uh, he was six foot two, but all his it turns out he said, as he as Heisman put it, was all his height was in his legs. 
Uh, he had a very he was very short trunked, <laughs> and so when back and then, the way the play started was much like rugby, which was you heel the ball back or you paw the ball back, one of the two. Um, when I, I played rugby, and it, normally it was a heel back. If you pawed it back, you it was a violation. But back then, like I said, in the American sport, uh, rules were made to be broken, and you did whatever you wanted to do. So they would start to start to play by pawing the ball back, and some guys would roll it back such end over end to make it flip up to the quarterback. But uh, <clears throat> seemed that poor Henry had a hard time bending over and fielding the ball cleanly <laughs> no matter what they did. So um, Heisman finally said, well, Ramrod, that was his nickname, Ramrod can't bend over, so just throw the ball up to him between your legs. And uh, so they, the center bent over, grabbed it, and flipped it up with a, with a quick snap and uh, came right to the guy's uh, right to his hands, right about at his waist level. And he says, hey, that's it. That's the stuff. And Heisman actually turned around. They took him at his word. And he looked at it and he went, wow, we could get going a lot faster if we do this. So that's what happened. They only had one team all year long that objected to this. And uh, they kind of played through it. But by next year, everyone countrywide, this thing spread like wildfire. Hmm. And uh, it, I think that is probably one of the most significant things that happened to speed up the game and change its character. Uh, just think of all the rules surrounding the center snap and offsides and, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, just everything. There's so many. You know, it created the linesman position to make sure that there were no offsides, that there was no uh, illegal procedures, no this, no that. Everything started to surround what was going on with the center and how he hiked it. So that was the big, that was the big one. I'm I'm often asked about, well, wouldn't you like a, a nickel or a dime for every touchdown pass thrown? I always said I'd rather have a penny for every center snap. <laughs> That'd be a lot of pennies. There was another. Yeah. There was another thing. Uh, another revolution that he was very much a part of, and I believe it had to do with Richard Von Gammon. Wasn't it Heisman who campaigned hard for the forward pass? And it was finally yes. permitted in 1906. What enthralled him yes. so much about the forward pass? What did it have to do with Richard Von Gammon? Who was Richard Von Gammon? And why did Heisman think it would help limit injuries? Um, he campaigned for it um, primarily because, one, we've already mentioned that uh, Teddy Roosevelt had said it's unless you clean up the game and reduce injuries, uh, I'm going to abolish football. And in, <clears throat> back in the... 1890s, Heisman uh, witnessed a game between North Carolina and Georgia in which uh, North Carolina just in desperation was about to be tackled for a tremendous loss and one of the 
guy said, pitch it here. And this guy threw about a 12-yard forward pass to this guy who grabbed it, hauled it in, went for a touchdown 70 yards down the field. And in the middle of it, the referee had been turned around because there's only one referee out in the field at this time and hadn't seen how the ball got there, and he called it a legal touchdown. And Heisman was on the sideline. He said it happened not 15 yards in front of me. <laughs> and he says, at the, at the time, I said forward pass, just out loud. And, uh, and he immediately saw the benefits of it in that, one, it kept from creating these monster um, collisions with large individuals because at that time it was getting more and more let's get the biggest guys we can possibly get and it'll just be a smash fest to see where the ball ends up and so it, it just became you know it was just these huge collisions these horrible uh crushing tackles that weren't one-on-one it was like five six seven on a few people and you ended up with broken bones, broken ribs, mm. pierced lungs, all mm. kinds of bad things happened. And uh, when he saw this, it instantly became apparent to him that, one, you can avoid these collisions, and two, it opened the game up for smaller players again. Um, that the guy that might come out for football but wouldn't because of how big these guys were hmm. would come out because it became more finesse. So he immediately started started laying the groundwork, um, especially when Roosevelt got involved in the early early 1900s, and he started writing the rules committee. And Camp just sort of wouldn't let it happen. He says that's changing the game too much. That's barnstorming. That's this. That's that. And finally, when Roosevelt got involved, uh, Camp relented, and they legalized it. And at first, a forward pass could go no farther than five yards. Later, it got opened up a bit more. There was a lot of there was a lot of rules that curtailed what you could do with a forward pass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what what they could do then, and what we see now with you know fifty yard strikes downfield was uh, just night and day. Yeah, but and the ball was much but, different than it is today as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you pick up a blunt-ended ball that looked more like a rugby ball and try to throw it downfield. It's it'll go, but not nearly as far. Right. So he, after a few years at Auburn, he jumps to Clemson, and his first season there mm-hmm. was quite spectacular. The Tigers went six and zero and outscored the opposition two hundred twenty-two to ten. Why was Clemson, and for that matter, all of Heisman's teams, with the exception of maybe the last team he coached, able to dominate so much? Um, good question. I think, I think one one reason is that in the South, uh, Heisman found a, a lot of fighting spirit, a lot of players that just love to to play. I think he found a. He found a very fertile ground for the game. The other was, again, this scientific approach that he, he used to create um, havoc out on the football field. And uh, I just think that he he was so he, he was 
light years ahead of everybody around him. He he took a he he took such a uh, in depth look at what was going on. He says there were there are things that we would play 10, 15 years ago that hadn't been used and people forgot about them. So we'd resurrect them and improve upon them, huh. bring them back out and and uh, use them, and nobody knew how to stop them. And he felt he felt like the best way to win a game was just simply run the legs off the opposition and just pile up scores. And he loved to pile up scores, so he did it. Yeah, he sure did. One of the yeah, one of the things he he uh, talked about was uh, long lateral passes that let you warp around ends were um, <clears throat> were things that they used when he was playing at Penn. And he says it kind of got dropped in favor of some other things and people forgot about it. So he resurrected it, especially at Clemson. And, uh, and then he also, he also had, again, being a guy that had played every position on the line, he always looked for very, very fast guards. He loved the guard position. He felt mm-hmm. it was the most important position in, on the field. And he, at Clemson, he found two of them that were very fast. And he could do all kinds of things. And he'd pull them out of the line and run one way or the other with them all the time, leading blocking. Because he had memories of a guy from Yale by the name of, or not Yale, but Princeton, by the name of uh, uh, Heffelfinger. And Heff was 212 pounds of steel muscle who... Uh, once he pulled out of the line, came running. He was just looking to see how many people he was going to lay waste every time he ran around. He was fast and he was big. And Heisman took notes on this guy and he said, "If I ever get fast guards, this is the way I'm going to do it." Yeah. So he got a couple of guys sitting, and what was the other guy's name? I'm blanking on it. But he, they, these guys, could pull out and run interference better than anybody else in the in the conference and they primarily more than anything else just really opened it up for him he also liked trick plays and in regards to trick plays he once told the atlanta constitution many people have considered tricks an unworthy way of winning games but i hold that it is the same in war where all kinds of tricks go by the name of strategy and I prefer to call my style of playing strategical instead of trickery. Considering his teams were usually physically smaller than those he played against, he used strategy to win. Did he not? After all, football is a strategical game. He said uh, back in his day, when someone ran a quote-unquote trick play or some sort of uh, means of that, that was sort of a shaded gray, whatever it might be. People admired it rather than criticized it. That it was, they thought it most clever. Um, you know, it's sort of like, oh my gosh, they did the hidden ball trick. Well, you know, back then, if you could do something that was really interesting and fake out the other guy, it was it was considered a, a really interesting. It was considered with a much much appreciation. Let's put it that way. And after all, that's and what you were that, trying to do. You wanted to win the game. You had a kid. I forget which team it was with, but he would hike the ball 
and the quarterback would turn around and fake a pitch, but he didn't have the ball, and the center was still holding the ball up behind his legs. And everybody would run with the play, and he'd pull it back in, go running down the field. Well, today you can't do that unless the ball hits the ground, bounces back up, which is um, difficult to pull off with the way the ball is shaped today. But back then, uh, unless you were really noticing what was going on, the you know you could you could get away with something like that, and the center could just pull the ball back in and and just walk down the field. <laughs> it was, and that was considered part of his strategy. He 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 jumped around a lot. He went from college to college to college. We've already talked about Oberlin, uh, Bucknell, uh, Auburn. He coached at Clemson, and then there was Georgia Tech, and they were so tired of losing to him, and they couldn't stand the seventy-three nothing whitewashing of nineteen oh three that they suffered against him that they set their sights on him, and ultimately, that's where he wound up, Georgia Tech. Why would he leave such a good job at Clemson for a team he destroyed? Yeah, they got tired of, um, Georgia Tech got tired of losing. Atlanta was, at that time, a major city, still is a major city. Uh, There was opportunities there. Uh, this was also it was situated in the county of his of his wife's family, and she wanted to go back to Georgia Tech. And Georgia, that's an Atlanta, interesting family too. Oh, it is the McCulloughs. Um, he uh, there was several things going on. One was he was he was a fellow who paid attention to to uh, dollars and cents, and they offered him. They offered him a salary that wasn't that much more than what he was making at Clemson. He was still doing summer stock when he was at Clemson, uh, his theater, and he was making more money there. He was allowed to continue doing summer stock while he was at Georgia Tech if he wanted to. And he, he came and he looked at the field and he says, okay, here are my conditions. Um, I want a fence built around the field and we'll we'll put up a, a till, and be, I want 30% of the gate. And the trustee said, we can't afford to put a fence up around here or stands or anything else. He says, I'll get the fence built, you get the stands built. Um, and he pulled in some favors from some people that he knew from the prison system, and they the prisoners came over and, and built the fences around the, around the uh, field, and then he brought in his, uh, over the years, he, he uh, had a program with the prison system to teach them football, to have them, to give them a proper social outlet for their aggression, <laughs> the things that put them in the prison. <laughs> and they used it as a reforming effort. Well, then uh, he, he also pressed the uh, boosters and he said, I'm sure you know somebody on the Atlanta Constitution. Or, or the journal, or anybody else that uh, they need, they might need a sports byline. Says, I want to be able to write a column for you. And these guys are saying, "Well, football coach, what can you write about?" Sure, we'll do it. And I forget whether he got a nickel a line or a penny a word or something <laughs> like that. You wrote and a I lot. remember interviewing. 
Yeah, I, I remember interviewing uh, Chip Roberts, his, his first quarterback at Georgia Tech, and he was a 93-year-old gentleman at that time, still sharp as a tack, and he said what they didn't get was that Heisman could write volumes about a toaster. <laughs> and he and he did. And he, he made a good living. You know, he pocketed a lot of money, but the journal didn't complain because it upped their readership come, you know, on sports. So... He had that going every place he went. He just asked, he says, how about this? How about that? And he always got it. And he, he was able to pocket a lot of, a lot of money. He was an entrepreneur. There's no getting around it. Mm -hmm. One of the other reasons he did go there and you sort of referenced it. And ultimately it's one of the reasons why he left too, was Evelyn McCollum. Tell me about Evelyn in particular, her father. Her father was a, uh, Interesting figure, and this is something that Mark Schleyball brought out. Um, uh, that was something I had not had before. Evelyn, uh, Evelyn was uh, the coach met met her on stage. She actually was very smitten by her sister, by her sister, and they, who they called Hazel Wood. Hmm. Um, but uh, Hazel was was. Uh, at the time betrothed and then married to another man. And so Evelyn just said, look, uh, you're not going to get her, but, uh, but I'm available. And she was, you know, a beautiful woman in her own right. She also had a son from a first marriage and that gentleman, uh, that gentleman, uh, passed away. And so she was a widow with a, with a young son. Mm -hmm. And Heisman said, well, let's, let's, uh, go through some courtship and see where this takes us. And they eventually married um, while he was still at Clemson. And then when the opportunity came to come back to Atlanta, she jumped, she, I think she was certainly a driving force to do that. Now her father was a Confederate Colonel who had a cavalry and it was McCullough's Raiders. And when the South um, surrendered, at Appomattox, um, he refused to surrender. And he was one of these rogue bands that went around uh, punishing Confederates who accepted the surrender, and he was quite a bloody character. He was finally hunted down uh, by a sheriff uh, in a town, and he was, he was actually gunned down at a, I want to say a barber shop, might have been a general store. It's in the book, and it's a lot more accurate than my memory. <laughs> What, what, Justin, the, what an uh, interesting life. Oh, what an, yeah, it was an amazing life. And I guess uh, Evelyn was there when her father died of uh, buckshot, um, uh, you know, buckshot wounds. But it had to have been quite a traumatic uh, experience for her. Um, she sure. was, she was, she was quite something. She was a, she was uh, uh, an actress, uh, a stage performer, and also, uh, uh, I, I, from what I gather and what I, what reading between the lines, she was um, quite a strong-willed person. Heisman mm -hmm. a strong-willed also, and they they talked frankly about uh, where they're at and what their feelings were and what was going on, and they they never um, they discussed things quite openly. Mm -hmm. There was no, um, she was not a wallflower in any way, shape, or form. And Heisman obviously was not a, a shy person either. Right. 
ultimately, uh, I think, I think his his drive and his passions and her her uh, her passions came into conflict. Sure, we'll get to that in just a second. I want to go back to the football field for a moment. There's something that really bothered Heisman as a coach. Something that he just couldn't stand, and it's something that a lot of coaches today can't stand. The fumble. What did he do to his players when they fumbled the ball? Well, the treatment for fumbling was a hundred a hundred throws against a hundred throws and catch against the wall. That included the managers if they dropped the ball. Um, <laughs> he gathered the team together every year before the first practice, and he'd hold out the ball and he'd say, "What is this?" And we'll be at anyone that tried to answer. Um, you can almost look and see the upperclassmen putting their hands over the mouths of the lowerclassmen so that they don't make idiots of themselves. <laughs> and he would turn and he would say, this is a piece of uh, leather wrapped around a rubber bladder in a <clears throat> prolated spheroid shape. costs about a dollar twenty-five in any hardware store. It says, uh, better to have died a small boy than to fumble this football. And um, that was that's how he started every season. It was sort of a ritual. And then uh, if you if you fumbled during practice, you went over to the wall and you started you started bouncing the ball against the wall and catching it, and you'd do it a hundred times. And he would assign a manager to count the to count the throws. And every so often, he would check back with the manager. And he says, "You'd say, Mr. So and So, how many?" How many is that? And you would say 78, and Heisman would say, I count 73. <laughs> 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 he, he would know every throw. He would keep track of it in his mind while he would be multitasking and instructing his team. And uh, he couldn't fool him. He just could not pull a wool over his eyes in any way. Georgia Tech wasn't that good a football team before he got there, as we talked about previously. But he gets there, and they go Eight one and one in nineteen oh four, his first year with the team. He turned the program around so quickly. How'd he do it? Especially with a program that had never really experienced success previously. I think um Heisman was a phenomenon that hadn't hit the college campus circuit except by just a few men. Um he was focused. He was serious. He had a tremendous um, means of leadership. He said a, co- a football coach has to be a dictator, uh, a performer, a uh, the all in all the general poobah and the and the um, um, the magistrate of a football team. His word is law, and nobody can question it. And he brought that type of sharp focus in there so that uh, young men following him instantly respected it. And I think that there's something to be said about uh, that time in the South where he's still um, he's still appealing to young men whose parents had been in the Confederacy. And I don't know if you ever saw the I don't know if you ever saw the film Gettysburg. There's a great line that Longstreet says where he says, uh, we in the South love our generals and our preachers. <laughs> hmm. And it's hmm. like they, a good a good 
a good orator who goes far in that climate. And I think that he had the ability to capture the imaginations of, of these young men and, and lift them to a place they hadn't been before. Um, Al Loeb, who was captain of his 1912 team, so, uh, he was a Jewish man in a, in a Bible, in the Bible belt, about to leave school in Heisman, convinced them that he needed to draw upon those same Jewish roots to be a man in the midst of, of uh, trepidation. And Loeb, Loeb turned into one of the finest centers he ever had. And um, Loeb said, Heisman had a way of taking minimums and making them maximums. He says, I know because he did it with me. Um, and and he also fought for the right for an African-American later on, too. Yes, yeah. The... Um, Later at Washington and Jefferson, he, uh, long before Eddie Robinson and the long, be- not Eddie Robinson, Jackie Robinson, and long before Ernie Nevers, um, he championed, he championed, uh, racial equality with his, uh, players against the Southern School. Mm-hmm. It was well before, well before, uh, anybody else was talking about crossing racial barriers and color lines. And uh, here he was taking a very unpopular stance and, and, and not backing down. Right. From 1914 to 1918, Georgia Tech didn't lose a single game. They went 33-0-2. And in 1917, they were named the number one team in the country after thumping, and I mean thumping, Auburn 68-7 to to conclude a perfect 9-0 season. They outscored the opposition 491 to 17. It took him 14 years to climb to the top, but some schools that season didn't field teams because of World War I. Do you think that diminished the accomplishment? How satisfying was it for John Heisman to finally win the national championship, even though some schools didn't field the team. I think um, I know that argument, but when I look at some of the team photos that I possess, I see some men in uniform in those team photos that were going off to war. So I think all in all, it hit across board fairly evenly. There was also another thing going on at that time, which people don't talk about. And that was the uh, influenza epidemic that hit everybody. Between the war and the and the flu epidemic, schools and um, the nation was was decimated. There was just an incredible uh, loss of life back then. And you know, Atlanta wasn't spared. Uh, Georgia Tech wasn't spared. Everybody was. Nobody was spared. Um, now, the one thing that did happen was General Woods. Um, did come to Georgia Tech and say uh, and encouraged many of the students to stay and get their engineering degrees because they would help the war effort with their degrees than without them because we need engineers. Hmm. So many, because it was a technical school, because it was, uh, you know, it was an engineering school, and they took those boys right out of college and put them put them out there building, you know, makeshift bridges and everything else that they needed. Um, there were a few more that probably stayed. 
but nonetheless, Georgia Tech added to their added to the war effort just as much as anybody else did. Um, I look at that and I'm saying, well, Auburn fielded a team, Ohio State fielded a team. Um, you know, and Ohio State, Auburn, and Georgia Tech were considered the one, two, and three teams in the country, and they <clears throat> and they played and they. Uh, Auburn played Ohio State the week before and played them to a tie, and then that's the next week came the thumping by by uh, Georgia Tech. So it's not like this was done against um, severely weakened opponents. I think if there was a lowering of talent, it was across the board. Hmm. The way he left Georgia Tech was quite unusual. Tell me about that. Well. There was um, a number of things going on. One is, I think that, as we mentioned earlier, um, Evelyn and, and uh, the coach had been having some frank discussions, and I think they both knew that the marriage was had been sliding downhill for quite some time. There is a, a letter that we have that was found in which Heisman wrote to the Georgia Tech student body, it says, if you happen to be up in New York City at such and such an address, stop in and see your old coach. And that's actually a letter written in 1918, a year Hmm. before he left. Hmm. So it tells me that he had designs to go to New York. That's what he really wanted to do. And I have the feeling that Evelyn did not want to leave Atlanta. Right. So we think... As best as we can make out, we think that they were trying to work this through for over, I'm saying, from for about a year and a half or so. They were trying to work this out. And finally, <clears throat> finally, they just, said, they just had a very frank discussion and said, you know, you want what you want and I want what I want. And obviously, it's not going to happen. So on a Sunday afternoon, uh, he calls... Um, Chip Roberts and and uh, uh, a few other coaches into <clears throat> in there, and he says, uh, "Gentlemen, you'll find twelve packets of our holdings uh, of all our physical holdings. Uh, would you go through them and create an equal divide um, into two piles?" And I remember Roberts telling me, he says. We just thought it was another exercise the coach wanted us to do. We just went ahead and got down to it. it took us about 20, 25 minutes. And we put six packets together on two different piles. And he said they, they totaled up within a few dollars of each other. And they stopped and they looked up and the coach said, well, um, as you may have surmised, Mrs. Heisman and I have decided to divorce and wow. to avoid social is to avo- to avoid social embarrassment, I've agreed to live elsewhere from from where she wants to to live. Shocker. And she, they they turned to her and she says, "Well, I'm staying here in Atlanta." And as uh, Chip Roberts says, we knew that at that moment we had lost our coach. Wow. And he said, "We went we went home." He says, "I went home and I cried myself to sleep." Wow. And. Uh, it was it was devastating to these people. They had no clue. Anyway, um, when the news hit, it went through the football team. It went through everybody, and they 
it was it was just it was just a shocker. Shockwaves went all the way through Atlanta when he decided to leave. Yeah. So he started over and he went back he, to his alma mater. Yeah, he goes back to his yeah. alma mater, Penn. But it wasn't easy. In fact, coaching Penn might have been one of the most challenging jobs of his career. But something yeah. amazing happened at Penn. He's conducting a practice, and there's a voice that can be heard at the opposite end of, the, of, of Franklin Field. And this voice is calling out, and it's criticizing the team. And now he's getting upset, and he's going to go confront the voice. This is one of the most amazing stories in the book. It's one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. It's incredible. Tell me about it. Uh, this came through my dad, and he said they were having practice, and um, he knew that there was some sort of commotion at the other end of the stadium, and he couldn't. He was doing something he couldn't tear away from. Finally, a player ran up and he says, "Coach, there's somebody down there really kind of heckling us, giving it to us." And he says, "It's getting so that we can't even concentrate on what we're doing." And I says, I'll see about this. And his dander is up. He's about ready to, he's ready to, you know, lay into whoever this is. He says, I'm going to blast them with the icy, icy uh, blows of the Northwest. This isn't going to happen. This isn't going to be tolerated. <laughs> he's, he's on his way over and you can see the steam coming out of his ears, you know. And he gets over there and some woman is up in the stands telling him, you guys can't even whip the women's auxiliary. What are you going to do against Franklin? <laughs> da, 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 da. And he, and, uh, he, get, he turns and he looks up there and this lady turns on him and says, what's the matter? Heist, don't you have it anymore? And he looks up there and here's Edith, uh, Edith, uh, standing there in front of him. She hadn't died at all. And she was just as nervous as ever. So let's just remind everybody, Edith was the woman whom he left Ohio because she was going to pass away because of tuberculosis and staying in Ohio, John couldn't mentally handle it. So he assumes she's passed on and he leaves. And how many years later? She's sitting in the stands heckling his team. Yep, 19... Somewhere around 1921, 22, or 20, maybe. I'm not sure. And uh, they're reunited, and they marry. And um, it's uh, it's just an amazing, sort of amazing turn of events. And she became the the football mother to the team. She was totally. She loved football. She had, she loved uh, the passion that Heisman had for the game. She had loved that back in Oberlin. And uh, something I don't think Edith uh, or Evelyn ever shared with Mm -hmm. Heisman was the love of the game. Mm -hmm. She loved all the the niceties that came with it, the notoriety around town. But I don't think she really liked the game itself. And uh, here was Edith, who's back in, uh, in a sense, she's back in her element with him. And... uh, you know, the, the first love is reunited and they're back together again. One of those 
Hollywood endings that you would never believe if it didn't really happen. Yeah. So he coaches at Penn. As I said, it was a challenging time for him. And he moves on to Washington and Jefferson, where he went 6-1-1. Amazingly, for some of the administration, for some people at Washington and Jefferson, that wasn't good enough. And so he resigns. Then he goes down to Rice Institute in Texas, which is now known as Rice University, for a four-year stint. Those final years were mediocre at best, but he tried everything he could to turn Rice around, including having everyone on the team grow beards. And he was the first to have an all-athletics dormitory. How difficult were those last years for John, and why the beards? very difficult um it was hard enough when he went back to Penn um I think had he stayed at Washington and Jeff it would have been a great place to wind up but I think he I think he was trying to just sock away as much money as he could he, he felt like his career was coming to an end and they, they offered him a lot of money to go to Rice and he took it I think had he stayed at Washington Jefferson, he might have built another dynasty. But um, Rice Rice was um, challenging. I had a letter. Uh, I had a le- I have a letter in his in his that uh, was in his collection of a fellow who was sort of the booster in charge of recruiting and. Here it is about a month before the season starts, and Heisman's going to go to Houston and start looking over the material and whipping them into shape. And the guy says, I haven't had time to get out and do much. Uh, we haven't really really recruited. Uh, we'll, uh, I've been on vacation, this, that, and the other. And it's very um, like blasé about this. He says, I'll be back in a few weeks, and we'll see if we can whip together some talent for you. <laughs> he's just taken the job and he's time is running short and no one's been out talking to any kids coming out of school about coming over and playing football for rice. And the thing is, is that rice is known as the uh, Ivy league school of the West at that time and still is to some to great extent. It's got high academic standards but it also competes with the University of Texas, Texas A&M, uh, Texas Christian, some big schools that drain a lot of talent in the Texas State and Oklahoma as well. And so um, Rice really gets sort of the leftovers and only gets the kids mm-hmm. that can make it academically at a high standard school. So they do not have a lot of football material, and if they get some um, they they can't surround it with a lot of uh, with a lot of backing. If they get a good back, they probably have a poor line. If they have a good line, they don't have anybody that can run. It goes on and on and on like that. So um, he gets an all. I, I, he he puts together this dormitory because he wants all the the team to get together and create and start working as a unit. And he figures if he gets them into a dormitory where they can supervise curfews and also build camaraderie, they might stand a better chance. 
and he can also control their diets as well. And uh, that was a big thing for him was to control the diets of the players. So, yeah, so those last couple of years at Rice were, were quite disappointing. You know, there's so much more that we can cover. We didn't talk about baseball. We didn't talk about gymnastics. We touched upon the Heisman shift. We really haven't talked about much of his stage presence, his writing. There's so much more. I encourage everyone listening to Sports Forgotten Heroes to get a copy of Heisman, The Man Behind the Trophy. It is such a great book, very detailed, but not overly long. It's really well-written. Kudos to you. And we've got to end it here. After Rice, he goes up to New York City, Downtown Athletic Club, they want to award a trophy to the best college football player of the year after each season. He was not really in agreement with doing that. Why not, and how did they come about the trophy, and then why was it named the John W. Heisman Memorial Trophy? Well, Heisman is hired um, in 1930 at the newly built downtown athletic club of New York city. He was sought after as um, a well-known name, somewhat of a celebrity and authority of, of athletics and football in particular. And in doing so, they, they created, um, they created a draw for membership because this was going to be an exclusive club. It was, it was built by the ship, the shipping industry primarily. And it was also a draw for businessmen off of Wall Street and in Lower Manhattan. And that uh, you know the it the Downtown Athletic Club stood not so far from Battery Park on the on South Manhattan. And uh, it's a beautiful facility. Had an Olympic sized swimming pool. Had a had a fighting uh, fight match. Uh, a, a boxing ring. Had a um, uh, squash courts all kinds of stuff, had a, a wonderful restaurant. Um, Sounds like a wonderful I mean, place. It's just a very exclusive club. Heisman was the sitting. Yeah, I, I was there while it was still operating. And uh, unfortunately, after 9-11, it, uh, it was structurally Ugh. hampered and it, it had to close its doors as a club. It was, it was reestablished as a condominium and... Uh, the people, the, there were tenants in it who bought the place and and was able to restore it as a as a uh, as a place to live. So uh, I was glad to see the building be maintained. But now Heisman's here and he is creating tennis matches and tournaments, and he's creating uh, boxing matches and fight night on Fridays and uh, golf outings in the in the suburbs and. Uh, for for the members and golf tournaments and and uh, all kinds of things, he's he's going around. He's doing all these things. He's writing in the club newsletter. Uh, he's they're having. He created a touchdown club for former uh, college football players. He's he's doing a lot of stuff. He's just uh, cranking out one event after another. And the. Uh, the board comes to him and says, we want to give out an award to the outstanding player east of the Mississippi in college football every year. 
and we want to start it this year, and we want you to formalize this and create a, an awards banquet. And Heisman goes, one, we don't need a, an, another banquet. Two, this is the consummate team sport. We don't want to uh, ferret out individuals and give them a big head. This goes against the grain of everything that I ever taught in, in my teams. They they kept going. They said, well, this would be a tribute to the whole team if uh, one of their players was called the outstanding player. And he goes, no, no, no. And they argued and argued. And they finally said, look, we're the ones that sign your paycheck. Uh, this is what we want. This is what we're going to get. And you're going to create the award and you're going to create the criteria for the, the award. And uh, he looked over and one of the guys on the board was a fellow by the name of Jack Prince, who was a good friend. <clears throat> and he said, Jack, you're in this with me. I'm not doing it by myself. And Prince relented and said, okay. And it was Jack that came up with the mm -hmm. idea of having a, uh, a vote. Um, that would, And Heisman said, well, the only qualified people would be sports writers and people that have eyes on the game and see it. And they came up with a means of doing that. And you get you got your vote by being invited by the DAC to, to have your vote. So um, <clears throat> they put it together, and the first player was Jay Berwanger mm -hmm. from University of Chicago, the one-man gang. And uh, man in the iron mask, of the many things that they called him. And uh, Heisman approved of him. He was a man that, that uh, took his studies seriously, and he played the game in a very hard-nosed way, and he... He liked it. He instantly liked the guy. And they gave him the Downtown Athletic Club Award in 1935. So they've established their precedent. They have the trophy design. They have all this stuff out there. The, you know, the little statuette with a stiff arm. And uh, Heisman goes out and he goes about his business. And he says, okay, maybe they'll <laughs> lose interest in this and we can get away with it. And, you know, a year or two from now, they'll, they'll let it die. So he goes out. Um, he goes out in late September. Uh, he's out on a on the golf course with some friends, and he kind of starts to cough and catches cold while he's out there. And he, being a Spartan kind of trainer and and uh, athlete, he goes in and takes a cold shower, which was the worst thing he could have done. And it, <clears throat> the thing just worsened, and he. He went into pneumonia, and after nine days, he awesome. succumbed to pneumonia, and he passed away. The uh, bad part about this is that penicillin was developed and <clears throat> marketed oh. only within four or five months after oh. his passing. Probably could have saved his life. So anyway, um, uh, the board comes together after his passing, and they, they vote immediately and unanimously to rename the Downtown Athletic Club Award, the Heisman Memorial Trophy, and that's how it got its name. And they they refitted the DAC award that Berwanger got with the Heisman Memorial Trophy as well. So the thing that he, yeah, the thing that he protested against became his and, memorial. Yeah, Eighty years later, it's still there. John, I can't thank you enough for taking so much time out of your day to spend it with me and and talk about uh, your great uncle John W. Heisman and the Heisman Trophy. This has been awesome. And like I said, it's a terrific book. I hope uh, all of our listeners pick up a copy. Anything else you want to say about uh, about your great uncle? Uh, it's been a 
um, since 1912, I've had a great weight <laughs> taken off my shoulders by getting the book out there. Um, it's, I feel like I finally did my service to my family. We, we are working on a film Terrific. to come out. We don't know when it's, uh, um, Hollywood does drag its heels getting these things done. It's been a working process for several years now. Um, but we're hoping uh, sometime soon before I expire that it will come out. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we, we have that in the works and we have other things uh, we're trying to promote as well coming up. It will, it's, sure. hate to talk too much about it because, because it still work, works in process. But uh, yeah, uh, it's it's been good. We've um, I feel like we've done right by him and that uh, now there's something out there that reflects who the man was rather than just a statuette. Awesome. Once again, John, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure being on. Thanks, Warren. Heisman wound up coaching for 36 years. He coached at Oberlin for one year and compiled a record of 7-0. and Then he moved on to Bucknell, where he coached for two years and went 6-2 and before heading back to Oberlin for a brief stay and compiling a mark of four wins, three losses, and one tie. Next up, Auburn, where he spent five years and went 12-4-2. Clemson was next. And that's where Heisman compiled a record of 19 wins, three losses, and two ties over the course of four years. Following Clemson, he went on to Georgia Tech for 16 years. While there, he won 102 games and a national championship while only losing 29 games and tying seven. His three years at Penn saw him go 16, 10, and 2. And in his lone year at Washington and Jefferson, he went 6 and 1. And then he finished up at Rice going 14, 18, and 3 over four years for the Owls. Overall, John W. Heisman compiled a final record of 186 wins, 70 losses, and 18 ties to go along with one national championship. But it's his overall contributions to the game of football that matter most. The center snap, signal calling, developing a playbook, the legalization of the forward pass, the Heisman shift, even the establishment of dormitories for athletes only. Those are just some of the great gifts that John W. Heisman gave and left us. And let's not forget that he expected all of his players to be accountable for their own actions, not curse, and to treat others with the utmost respect, no matter the color of their skin, religious preference, or from where they came. And he lived that life too. For sure, a trophy every year to honor the best college football player in the country is just a small way to pay gratitude. And if you want to learn more about John W. Heisman and what he meant to the game, you can listen to a free download of the book, Heisman, The Man Behind the Trophy, on Audible. Just enter the code audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. You can order the book on Amazon, or if you'd like an autographed copy of Heisman, The Man Behind the Trophy, there are a limited number available. Please contact me by visiting sportsfh.com. Hit the contact button and send me a note, and I'll let you know how you can get an autographed copy of this terrific book. It's really a great book to read, and it will make a welcome addition to any library. 
Coming up next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we have a very special guest. The last quarterback to lead the Cleveland Browns to an NFL championship. Yeah, once upon a time, the Browns were, without question, year in and year out, the best team in all of football. And the last quarterback to lead the Browns to an NFL championship was Frank Ryan, a man whom Bleacher Report calls the most underrated player in the history of the NFL. And he'll be here along with Roger Gordon, a terrific author, to talk about Frank and the 1964 Cleveland Browns. That's next time. Thanks again to today's guest, John M. Heisman, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.